1 Thessalonians chapter 1, if you would please. Brand new series, you're looking at the title, Living in the Light of His Return. And to a generation that tends to forget, it's probably good for us to remind ourselves that in order to thank, we need to think. That's a true statement, by the way. In order to thank, genuinely speaking, we need to think. I can't count the number of times that my own personal ungrateful spirit has been rebuked simply by recounting the blessings of God through another person or persons in my life. Indeed, the Apostle Paul starts his letter. In fact, it could be the very first letter he ever wrote that was inspired in the New Testament. It's between that and Galatians. Either one, it's an early letter around 49 AD to the Thessalonians. He starts with gratitude. And with that in mind, look with me at the first three verses of this epistle. It says, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always. Notice these present tenses. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your, and here's our little outline for the day, your work of faith, labor of love, steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. And hence the beginning of this great epistle. And just imagine if you, just for a moment, you're, you're the Thessalonians. You're a brand new church. You're brand new converts. You've only been Christians for just a few months, perhaps. First century new church. And the very first thing you read from your spiritual father, the very first thing you read from your spiritual leader, is his gratitude to God for you. How do you think you would feel? How would that make you feel? You only have to consider how you already feel when somebody thanks God for you now, right? It's a pretty darn good feeling, isn't it? A few weeks ago, something just crazy happened to me in a coffee shop, of course. And um, so uh, I was in this coffee shop. I, one of the things I like about this coffee shop, they get this long extended deck that goes off the front of the uh, coffee shop. And normally there's a few people there, but on this particular morning, the entire deck, every table except for one was full. Full. There must have been 15, 20 people out there. And it was a beautiful day. That's the reason why. And there was one little table for two that was open, I took it. I sat down. And I, I got, all my, got my bag out, got my books out, got my iPad out, started studying. And all of a sudden, two elderly women, and by elderly I mean one was encroaching on 90, and the other was clearly in her 80s. They walked up on the deck, and they stopped, and they kind of started looking around. And everybody's eyes were on them. And, I mean, everybody looked really sheepish in the moment. And I sensed my opportunity. So I stood up, and I said, ladies, you can have my table. And I mean to tell you, the, the less elderly of the two just went over the top. Oh, my goodness, thank you. She goes, I'll bet you only do that to the pretty ladies. <laughs> and now everybody's got my attention. I said, 
You read me like a book. I pulled out the chair for him, sat down. And there were no other tables, but there was a chair at the very end of the deck. And so I, I and, and now everybody's, I, I mean, every single person on deck is observing because they're kind of feeling embarrassed. And I walked to the end, and I sat on that chair. And there were two guys right on the side, and one guy looks at me and goes, well played. And then he took their one chair, he goes, here, have a table. And then he slid his chair over to me. And so I just, inst- I mean, we all got a great laugh out of it. I, I propped my, uh, my uh, bag on there and pulled my stuff. I started working off my table, so to speak. And another couple of gals right next to me on the other side just went off. They said, you just don't see those acts of kindnesses anymore. It was a little bit over the top, almost embarrassing. But I'll be honest, I'll be candid, felt really good. <laughs> but the fun had just begun. Now, the Apostle Paul is starting his epistle with gratitude. And by the way, I couldn't help but wonder in that moment out on that deck how such a simple act of kindness, and not a very big one at that, could produce such a tremendous amount of gratitude. And here is the Apostle Paul. He's an evangelist. He's a soul winner, that is. And he's a, he's a church planter who had won these individuals to Christ. And you talk about an act of kindness. Yet he's the one expressing thanks to God for them. I can't help but think of uh, 3 John 4 where John writes, I have no greater joy than when my what? Children walk in truth. Now listen carefully. to what I understand that there's a difference between joy and happiness. But let me tell you something. While joy is different than gratitude... You show me a person of joy, and I'll show you a person of gratitude every time. Yet, shouldn't the Thessalonians, shouldn't they have been the ones who were giving thanks? Well, yes, but it's always more blessed to give than to receive, right? So, so, so what was Paul thankful for? What was he so, why he's just exploding? We're going to see here after a little bit just how grateful. He was never more grateful for any other church in the entire New Testament like he was this one. I'll prove it to you. And what was it? Why was he so over-the-top grateful? Was it because they prayed the prayer of salvation? Oh, it's much, much more than that. Because what took place as a result of whatever they prayed was an explosion of, of fruit. And so just to give you a context, we pick it up where we left off in verse 4. For we know, brothers, <clears throat> loved by God, that he has chosen you. That's where we get our word election. Because our gospel came to you not only in word, but in power and in the Holy Spirit with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators That's the Greek word mimite. We get our word mimic from this word. Uh, You became imitators of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia, think northern Greece, and Achaia, think southern Greece. For not only was the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere. So that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you. And how you turned to God 
from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. That's why Paul was so grateful. So you say, when did all this take place? I'm glad you asked. Make your way over to Acts chapter 17. Keep your your marker there because we're going to come back. Acts chapter 17 is the historical marker, the historical place by which in the second missionary journey of the Apostle Paul, the church at Thessalonica was planted. Now the year was 49 AD, might have been 50, give or take. Having completed his very first missionary journey, the Apostle Paul said to the gang, hey, let's go back. This is in chapter 36, or 1536. Let's go back and check out how our churches we planted are doing. Let's see how they're doing. Let's see how they're progressing in the faith. And so that's what occurs. This is how the second missionary journey begins. And as they're moving, they're, they're starting to move. They go this way. The Spirit of God says no. They go this way. The Spirit of God says no. And then God gives them a vision in chapter 16 of a man from this northern part of Greece, Macedonia. And the man says, hey, hey, come on over to Macedonia. Talk to us. And that's how Paul discerned the leading of the Lord. Now, I'm going to give you a principle that all of you should mark down. It's as old as the hills, but it's still true. You keep serving God, and God will keep leading you. Paul was already serving. He wasn't just sitting still. And I was reminded of this uh, Recently, somebody, uh, in fact, this, this young pastor actually wrote a book. He asked me to write part of the foreword in the book, which I was more than happy to do so. It's a biography of Dr. Bob Cropsey. His name doesn't mean anything to most of you. Some of you, it'll immediately ring a bell. About 12 years ago, Dr. Cropsey spoke in this church on this platform in this very spot. A medical missionary with a great heart for God and for souls in Togo, West Africa, where we, we, you know, we've been up in our, to our eyeballs with Togo for a dozen years now. Praise the Lord. Well, uh, about that time, a young man came into my office. He had just graduated from Bible college, and he said, hey, I, I, I want to set up an appointment with you. I said, what do you need? He said, Josh says to me, he goes, Pastor, I don't know what I'm supposed to be doing. I said, what do you mean you don't know what you're supposed to be doing? I mean, I'm getting ready to graduate from Bible college. I'm going to have a degree. I, I don't know what I'm supposed to be doing. And so I looked at him, and being, you know, the, the, the wise counselor that I am, I'm going, what am I going to say to him? I said, Josh, here, here's the deal. I said, Josh, what are you doing now? Well, I already knew he was involved with our youth. He was serving faithfully our elderly. He, he and his family were going and making personal house calls on many of the elderly in our church while serving all, uh, much of the time with our youth. And he was doing that currently. I said, Josh, look, you don't need to worry about it. Just chillax. Seriously, I didn't use that word, but, you know, whatever. Just, just remain faithful. It's, if you don't know what you're supposed to do, don't, that's not the time to move when you don't know what you're supposed to do. That's the time to keep serving the Lord. He will direct you. I knew that was a true statement. I remember after your life, I thought, oh, God, what are you going to do with this guy? I had no idea. It was just three or four days later that Dr. Cropsey came and spoke. And, and cast the vision. I mean, when he spoke, it was the very first time he'd ever articulated. He'd never given a missionary presentation before, ever. He was, it, was, it was sort of rudimentary. His pictures were kind of hokey. And, and, uh, but man, his heart came out for God. His love for the people of Africa, the need, the, the great medical needs in northern Togo, and, 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 the, and the souls of those who were dying and lost and going to hell as a result. 
And sitting right over there was Josh and Jenny Farver, just puddles of tears, weeping their eyes out, made their way up, and for the next 10 years served faithfully in northern Toga. Again, we'll put it up there. You keep serving God, and God will keep leading you. Some of you aren't serving, and you wonder why God isn't leading. Well, you're not gonna, you need to move so the Spirit of God will lead. Now, this embarks the Apostle Paul on his second missionary journey. And it wasn't without conflict. It's never squeegee clean when you're moving ahead in the Lord's work, right? Even for the great Paul. I mean, John Mark wimped out. Timothy stood out. And so Paul, Silas, and Timothy headed out into the second missionary journey. And this is the map. This is, this was, this is really in the red. You see this. That, that's, that's how it went right along. You see the Mediterranean Sea, Palestine over here to the, to the right. you got the Aegean Sea. You've got... And, and the blue arrow is where, is where Thessalonica was, is. In fact, it still exists today. The city's still thriving today. It was a city of 200,000 people in the first century. Think a million today. And it also was along the Roman Ignatian Way. That's the, the Romans were known for building highways. The Ignatian Way was the most famous of all highways. If you want to get a comparison, think Interstate 80. If you want to get from one side of the United States to the other, you're going to take 80, unless you're on vacation for three months. So this is the fastest way. So it's right along that road. So it's a major metropolitan city, great place to plant the gospel. He's on this journey, this second journey, to encourage the churches they've already planted. And they come to Thessalonica. You're there in Acts 17, and here's what happens. Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica. Where there was a synagogue of the Jews. Now watch carefully. And Paul went in as was his custom. This is what he did because he's very familiar with Judaism, being a former, you know, adherent to that. And on three Sabbath days, that's three weeks, he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead and saying, This Jesus whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous. And, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. So that's... There's the, now a riot takes place as a result of it. I want you to notice what we just read here, okay? Paul arrives. The most natural place to go is the synagogue. So he goes to the synagogue. And he's there for how long? Three Sabbaths. Now, why? what did he do? What did Paul do for three Sabbaths with these Jews? Well, we know what he did. He taught the Chuck Bible study. That's what he did. I point this out only because those of you who are not in the know know that this study has been greatly used of God, and some of you have come to Christ as a result of going through this study. And, uh, and Paul didn't take 18 weeks with these interviews. He took three, less than a month. But I want you to see, because this is so fascinating to me, this might be the only window we have in the entire New Testament of the actual Bible study type of ministry that Paul had with anyone. 
He's there for three weeks as he presents the God. Notice verse 2 says, he reasoned. You see the word reason? The Greek word literally means to discourse by questions and answers. So they were asking questions. Paul was giving answers. All right? But notice where they're coming from. From the what? From the scriptures. Now, Paul took culture. He took reason. He took... He even, he even leaned into some of the pagan teaching from time to time in order to, be, to defend the faith. But at the end of the day, he reasoned from the word of God because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Amen? Paul was a biblical apologist. Now, I want you to notice he uses some other very powerful words here. In verse 3, he not only reasoned, but he was explaining. You see that term there? The word explaining literally means to open up completely. I love that. He would say something very similar to the Ephesians as he was getting ready to leave them. In Acts chapter 20 and verse 21, he says, You remember when I was with you, I was testifying, I testified to you, repentance towards God, faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. The word testifying in Acts 20 verse 21 uh, is the word diamorturamai. It means to give a thorough testimony. And you can't give a thorough testimony unless you have a thorough understanding of this. Doesn't mean you have to be a master. Doesn't mean you have to have a master's. It doesn't mean you have to have a doctorate. It doesn't mean you have to be a brilliant theologian to know your Bible. To be able to reason through QA and to explain by opening up thoroughly the Word of God. But he doesn't, he doesn't just stop there. He not only is explaining, but see the next power word there, proving. See that word there? The word proving, the Greek word literally means to lay beside. That's an important thing to note, to lay beside. So what, what is he laying beside? So the, the context tells us, remember, he's proving that Jesus was the Christ. So you know if he's in a, a synagogue, he's going into the Old Testament, he's taking Psalm 22, he's taking Isaiah 53, he's taking some of these prophecies, and he's laying them beside what's going on. He's no doubt laying his own life on the line and giving his testimony. Because next to the word of God, the testimony is your personal testimony is the most powerful thing you have. And so that's what he's doing. He's proving. And this is, this is an insight into how to win people to Jesus, folks, right here. It doesn't get any better than this. Just the other day, I was in a, another coffee shop, different than the other one. And, uh, and this, this young man who is a student leader in, another, in a college ministry, reputable college ministry, Saw me studying, knew who I was, yada, 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 asked me some questions, said he was going to meet with a guy shortly, and he was looking at the chapter that he was studying, and he asked me the question. He said, how would you teach this chapter? He's very sincere, and I, I was able to take these very principles and share them with him. I told him, your first task is to rightly understand the passage itself. Bring in other passages that buttress the, pas the passage if possible, and then illustrate it, preferably with your own life. And it was fun because I kept studying, and I watched him do that just five feet from me. So cool. And notice what Paul says after, after he does it, after he explains and proves, lays these things aside, that the Christ had to suffer and then rise again. Then he says, look at the end of verse 3. This Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. This is the boom shakalaka right here. So what you got here is he's, he's teaching. He's no different than Jesus on the road to Emmaus with those two disciples. Remember, he took the Old Testament and just explained. He exegeted the Old Testament and showed that he's the one. He's the Christ. Their eyes are open. 
And if you're going to reach people like the Apostle Paul, like the Thessalonian church would end up doing, you don't manipulate, you don't mesmerize, you don't try to wow them with a bunch of warm fuzzies. But rather you get the truth of God combined with the life for God, and that's powerful enough right there. Right there. And the result was this tremendous mixture of new converts. You saw that. I mean, different people coming to Jesus, Jews coming to Jesus. Did you see the expression devout Greeks in there? You should underline that because that's the key to why the, the rest of the passage, verse 5 and following, says the Jews went you know, apoplectic. They went crazy. They, went, they were insanely jealous. Why? Because the devout Greeks were coming to Jesus. A devout Greek, this, a devout person, was not a Jew, was not a proselyte, but they were leaning into that. They were already going that direction. The Jews had had an impact. They were drawn to the synagogue. And Paul's preaching the gospel in just a month, and a, and a bunch of them come to Christ, and this made them insanely jealous. And that's the reason why the riot ensued. In fact, if you see in verse 7, they say, uh, it says, you know, this Paul guy's preaching another Jesus, another king. You see that? Another king. And, and the Greek word another is the word heteros. It means another of a different kind. And let me tell you something. Jesus is another of a different kind king. Amen? They were thinking, you know, let's disrupt him. This is, they're, they're, he wants to take over the world. And make no mistake, Jesus will take over the world someday. But kingship starts in your heart. And these people were giving themselves to the gospel. Their hearts are being changed. Has your heart been changed? In the middle of this, as they're having this, this hissy fit breakdown and tattling on Paul, they sort of give themselves away. You see what they said? Look what they said. Look, at they, look at how I love this description in verse 6. These guys have turned the world upside down. Wouldn't it be nice to be known as a people that turn the world upside down? Can I get an amen? Except, think with me on this. The perspective of the unbeliever, the perspective of those who are outside of Jesus is always, mark my words, it is always to see things opposite as they actually are. I'll say that again. The outsider, the outsider of the gospel, that's some of you, by the way, always, you always see everything opposite of what it actually is. From their perspective, these guys are turning the world upside down. Paul wasn't there to turn the world upside down. The world was already upside down. He was there to turn it right side up. And that's what we do. Individual worlds. People who come to know Jesus, their world is already upside down. Some of your worlds are upside down. The gospel will turn it right side up. And that's what he was doing. And by the way, what's your world looking like right now? Is it upside down? Is it right side up? Paul, as a result of this riot, basically gets run out of town. He makes his way over to Athens, sends Timothy back because he's concerned for what's going on over there. Timothy comes back and says, holy smokes, they are just going on for Jesus. It's amazing what the gospel can do. And that's, that is 
That's the background to Paul writing this letter to the Thessalonians. Now you know. And every single chapter, what stands out in this great epistle, as you make your way back to 1 Thessalonians, is is the return of Jesus and living in the light of that return. Let me show you what I mean. Every chapter ends up, you just saw the one, verse 9, that they turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God, verse 10, and to wait for his son from where? From heaven, who delivers us from the wrath to come. At chapter 2, go to chapter 2 and look all the way down to chapter 2 and verse 19. For what is our hope, our joy, our crown, our boasting before the Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? You're our glory and our joy. At his coming, notice. Chapter 3, last verse. So that he may establish your hearts blameless and holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. And then chapter 4, of course, is the famous one. The Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout with the voice of the archangel, the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. We'll always be with one another, so, so comfort one another. Hallelujah! And then at the very end, chapter 5 He says in verse 23, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless when? At the coming of our Lord Jesus. Hence the title of our series. And throughout this letter, we see this over-the-top grateful Apostle Paul. And we read it in the opening salvo here in the first three verses. He said, I'm super thankful. And he uses all these present tenses. And I'm going to give you three evidences of salvation that caused Paul to be grateful. You can ask yourself if these evidences are true in your life. We're just going to quickly go through it here. One is their work of faith. Secondly, their labor of love. And thirdly, their steadfastness and hope. There's your little outline. These are the things that gave Paul the absolute assurance that their salvation was real. And you can put this up against, you can lay this up against yourself. And by the way, did you catch the famous triad there? Faith, hope, and love for the greatest of these is? That's 1 Corinthians 13. This triad keeps coming up in the New Testament. The order is different, but that's because Paul is pointing them to the return of Jesus. This is the order you really want in this world. In the next world, we'll take 1 Corinthians 13. Because now abides faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. Faith, you won't need in heaven. Hope, you won't need in heaven. Love goes on. Amen? In this world, we need the work of faith, the labor of love, and the steadfastness of hope to get us through all the vicissitudes and struggles of your life. There's evidence that they were persecuted. We see that in verse 6. And they needed to get beyond their circumstances like so many of you. Right now, the anxiety levels are where they have, they're just off the charts and in some of your lives. And all of that is is that you're not, your anxiety level is high and the reason it's high is because you're not looking high enough. Lead me to the rock which is higher than I. Amen? That's what the psalmist said. 1 Thessalonians is a true north. 
for God's people. It will get you out of the morass. It will get you out of the cloud. It will get you out of the clod and the mud and everything that you're involved in right now. You're worried about the election. You're worried about COVID. You're worried about all these things. And you ought to get your head above us and see that Jesus is coming again. Now back to those three evidences. The three evidences of salvation that caused Paul to be grateful. Uh, you, you might be wondering, what does it mean? Work of faith, labor of love, steadfastness, uh, and hope. Well, he actually explains what they mean in that very chapter, at the very end of it. When he says, you, in fact, he says at the very end of chapter 1, he says, it's really cool, and I don't want you to miss it. He says you, that you, uh, you turn to God from idols to know, to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son. There, there it is right there. So you've got the work of faith. Okay? Now, I know that some of you are thinking, work of faith. I thought, faith, I th- I thought uh, our salvation isn't based on, on works. It's not. It's not saved by faith but plus works, but saved by faith that works, right? Like James said, faith without works is what? It's dead. So Paul says, the work of faith, he says at the end, he says, you turn to God. You turn to God. There's evidence there. The labor of love, that's the next point we gave you. The word labor and and work look alike, but they're different Greek words. The second one is a more arduous kind of a work because love is the engine of our labor. Whatever you do, if it's not love, it's going to be a drudgery. Can I get an amen to that? So where is that? You can see it, can't you? The labor of love, you, you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God. So there it is. And then, because they were under duress, just like some of you are under anxiety, you can't get your head above the clouds, you need to. Paul commends them because in spite of all they were going through, they had steadfastness of hope. What a great line. The word hope means expectation. And you see it here at the end of the, ver- of the chapter. Here it is, you, to wait for his son from heaven. That's how you get through. The stuff you're going through now. The word steadfast is a word which means patient endurance. So God gives to those who really know him. But today, by way of introduction, we meet a very thankful Apostle Paul. And he didn't just start his letter with thanks. And you can read a lot of these epistles he wrote. And he, he says that like Philippians, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you. He loved the Philippian church. He loved them all. But he was never more grateful than he was for this church. And I can prove it to you, as I said earlier. Because he didn't just start his letter with thanks. He permeated his letter with thanks. Let me show you. We already saw verse 2 where he says, I I give thanks to God always for you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers. And he gives those reasons that we've already seen. Chapter 2 and verse 13. And we also thank God constantly for this. When you receive the word which you heard from us, You welcomed it, not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God, which effectively works in those who believe. So he's grateful. And then chapter 3 and verse 9, look at that. He says, for what thanksgiving can, can we return to God for you? For all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God. Just great stuff. And then if you look at the last chapter, He admonishes us, so he's admonishing himself in chapter 5 
in verse 18, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. Amen? So Paul permeates this entire epistle, this entire letter, with gratitude. So, back to the coffee shop. First one I talked about. So I, I go in there. The place is full. There's, every single table is full. I take, you know, I take the one, except for the one, I take it. And uh, I'm, I'm settling in. These two elderly ladies come in. Everybody's eyes, they're all sheepish. God, I sense this opportunity, gave them the table, and they're just, just heaping praise on me. It's almost embarrassing. But I, I go over and I take, I, take the, I take the one chair over there, and the guy next to me goes, well played. And the other ladies over here, different set, are just, oh, we just don't see this kindness anymore. And all, I got to be honest. And then, then, then those guys took this chair and slid it over and said, here's your table. I literally plopped all my stuff on that chair and started studying off. I was happy to do so. And it felt pretty good. About five minutes later, I look up, and a guy is walking right through the deck, comes right up to the chair and says, you using that? Everybody's eyes. I mean, at first, I thought it was a joke. I thought somebody set him up. Seriously. I looked up, and I realized within a split second, I'd never, he, wasn't, he wasn't there five minutes ago. He'd just shown up looking for a chair. And I, I put my, took my stuff. I picked it up. I said, it's all yours. He grabbed the chair, didn't even say thanks, walked off, and everybody stared at him and just roared with laughter because everybody knew what was going on except for him. And now I, I got nothing. And the two guys next to me had said, well played. Instinctively, one gets up, grabs the table, slides it over to me, goes like this, <sighs> takes his shirt out and wipes it down. <laughs> Somebody else said, you can't make this stuff up, and you can't make this stuff up. Oh, my goodness. But it was also powerful. Fun, but powerful. You know, by not resisting an opportunity to give, and not that much, really. I was able, we were able to witness an amazing display of gratitude. As many onlookers observed what just happened. In order to thank, you have to think. This is true of all of you. It's certainly true of children, even children. By the way, Jesus said you have to become a child if you're going to get saved. Did you know that? You have to be super humble. Contemplate what Jesus has done for you in the gospel. Just the other day, a little girl in our church, I won't tell you who, about five-year-old, living in a wonderful home, hearing the gospel constantly, said to her dad, Daddy, I think I'm ready to ask Jesus to be my Savior. I already knew he died for me, but I don't think I've ever said thank you. She did, and she thanked Jesus with her daddy and trusted the one who died for her and rose again as her personal Lord and Savior. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. Amen? Are you ready to say thank you? In many ways, the gratitude of the heart 
is the evidence of salvation. In fact, you show me somebody who has placed their faith in Jesus without gratitude, I'll question their salvation every time. That's why Paul was over the top grateful to God for these individuals. As he looks at your life, as God looks at your life, is he over the top? Is God going, wow, she really, really appreciates what I've done for her. He is so thankful, so joyful for the cross and the resurrection of Jesus in his life. Is that happening? Does your life say thank you? Pray with me. God, thank you for your indescribable gift, the gift of your son. Thank you that you have tasked us to overflow with gratitude and joy and to give the gospel, to know your word, to be able to reason and explain and prove both by your word and our lives that Christ is able to redeem. Thank you for reminding us today, Lord, that you you direct us and you move us as we move. And there are some people here today that are just stagnant in their faith. They're not serving here. They know they should be. They're probably even guilty for it. God, would you, by your Holy Spirit, whisper to them, this is where your joy is. This is where your joy is. Would you do that, Lord? I pray for those who are here whose hearts have never said thank you to you. Not really. Never, like the little girl, said, I knew all about it, but I've never said thank you. That would give way to her salvation, and it might give way to some of yours. Yours. Today, are you grateful to God for what Christ has done for you? And would you be one of those who would say, I need this. I want this. I trust you, Lord, and I thank you for saving me through the virtue of your son, Jesus' death and resurrection. And God, I pray that there would, you would just raise up by way of revival, as we preached last week, a church that overflows with gratitude and waits for the coming of your son because you're keeping our heads above the clouds because he is coming again. We pray in his name. Let's stand.